0: Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In the upcoming show, we take a look at the life of a Jewish refugee who, before World War II, fled to the Philippines, a country that opened its borders when many others were closing theirs. This is Episode 6, Manilaner the story of a Jewish refugee in Manila. As a child, Frank Ephraim grew up under the long, hooked shadow of the swastika. Born in 1931 in Charlottenburg, Berlin, he was only about to turn two years old when Adolf Hitler was appointed chancellor and had only just turned two. When stormtrooper thugs filled the streets, the Reichstag was set on fire, and the little man with the comedian's mustache became, for all intents and purposes, dictator of Germany. As a middle-class Jewish kid living in Nazi Germany, Ephraim saw the children of neighbors sign up for the Hitler Youth, and then, now proudly wearing their brown uniforms with the daggers on their belts, They asked him if he was a full Jew or half-Jew. Signs saying Jews not allowed were hung up in stores. At parks, he and his mother and father could only sit down on yellow benches that had a big black J painted over them. When he finally went to school, he could only attend all Jewish institutions. When a group of students got off the streetcar to go inside the school, Frank could hear people mutter, those damn Jews. This was Berlin in the 30s, the world that Frank grew up in. He still played with his Hitler Youth friends and attended Christmas parties where their party member fathers dressed up as Santa Claus and gave him cookies. In the year of the Olympics, he joined an all-Jewish children's crew that performed inside the newly built stadium doing a medicine ball routine in a blue and white uniform with a Star of David printed on it. He went to summer camps, saw a Shirley Temple movie, watched the parade of black-clad SS troopers during Hitler's birthday, which was a holiday all over Germany. But in the countryside, relatives and friends were being arrested. The Nuremberg race laws of 1935 officially downgraded Jews as German citizens and now called them German subjects instead. Jews were banned from public places. His mother, a housewife, kept watch for the Gestapo and would have a small light on in the kitchen as a sign to his father that they had not been visited by the police that day. They, and many others in the Jewish community, saw that they were slowly being pushed out of the greater German society and into the dark shadows. God knows what would happen to them there. Frank's mother and father began to make preparations to get out of Germany, but some still held out hope that it would all blow over, that Hitler would lose power, that their country would change course. And then on November 9, 1938, came the night of the broken glass. knock they called it. Imagine your neighbors setting your temple on fire, cheering as they broke glass, or looted furniture, or tore up your scrolls, or painted words on the walls. Jew or Jewish pig, most of them said. Imagine the people who you thought were your friends standing off to the side stone-faced and impassive. Imagine begging the police and the firemen for help, but they either outright ignored you or laughed in your face. Imagine seeing children being forced to walk over broken shards of glass and old people attacked on the street, and then your own face, reflected on a cracked window. The morning after Kristallnacht, Frank Ephraim's father, looking in shock at the remains of the burned-out synagogue, knew they had to get out of Berlin as fast as possible. One of their distant relatives was living in a far-off tropical archipelago called the Philippines, a colony-turned-commonwealth of the United States. From there, the Ephraims thought they would be able to immigrate to the continental U.S. and live with Mrs. Ephraim's side of the family in Minnesota. The immigration quotas to the United States were filled, but they got permission to move to the Philippines. On the Ephraim's visa, it is printed, For the journey to the United States. The American consulate crossed the U.S. out and wrote, Philippine Islands. A cousin signed an affidavit that he would support the family in their emigration out of Germany. Right before their departure, the Gestapo knocked. (laughs) apartment. They were not there to arrest them. They were only there to make sure that they would not take anything quote-unquote German out of the country. It took the police two hours. When the family showed them the medals of Frank's grandfather from World War I, earned in service as a German cavalry soldier, the police told the Ephraims to keep them. On February 20, 1939, The day after Frank's eighth birthday, the Ephraim family boarded a train and started their long journey to Manila. All of their jewelry was sealed up in little envelopes and hidden away in their luggage. Their passports were marked with a red J for Jew. This large letter J stamped in red beside the eagle and swastika symbol of the Deutsche Could also be found in the passports of 28 Jewish families who arrived in the Philippines in 1937 after fleeing from Shanghai. Originally from Germany, they had escaped the Nazi regime and settled in the international settlement of China. But when the Sino-Japanese War broke out in 1937, they sailed south to Manila as Imperial Japanese troops marched closer and closer to the city. However, their passports had no visas, and legally, they could not enter the Philippines. But Paul McNutt, the U.S. High Commissioner to the archipelago, found a legal loophole. Buried in the list of duties of his nebulous position was the executive power to, quote unquote, waive requirements in admitting people to the islands. That will do the job, McNutt said. It is said that the plan to offer Jews safe harbor in the Philippines was conceived during a poker game. Among the leaders of the Jewish community in Manila were the Frieder brothers, who ran a cigar business and liked to play cards with Maknat and Philippine president Manuel L. Quezon. Whether in a card game or not, Maknat, Quezon, and the Frieders formulated a formal project to safeguard Jewish refugees in the Philippines. McNutt worked the legal angle and drew up the rules. The Frieders galvanized the Jewish community's pledge to support all refugees. Hezon shored up Filipino support, selling the idea to his fellow citizens as a matter of moral urgency. After all, during a trip to Berlin, his wife Aurora once saw a parade of goose-stepping Nazi stormtroopers and shivered at the sight. And so in 1937, the Jewish Refugee Committee was set up in Manila. It had three rules, carefully crafted to tiptoe around the edge of restrictive U.S. immigration law. First, only Jews of quote-unquote desirable professions would be allowed in. Doctors, nurses, engineers, mechanics, farmers, and strangely enough, barbers. Second, They had to have enough money to ensure that they would not become quote unquote public charges. Each refugee was required to deposit $1,200 or more than 1 million pesos in today's money inside the Manila Bank. And when arriving in the Philippines, they had to have cash on hand of around $180. Lastly, the Jewish community in the Philippines would need to assume responsibility for all refugees. In Manila, there was a groundswell of sympathy for the Jewish cause. Ten days after Kristallnacht, an anti-Nazi rally was held in the Ateneo de Manila University campus in Intramuros. Catholic bishops and prominent businessmen alike issued public statements condemning Germany. And in a radio address, McNutt railed against Hitler's regime. He said, Within the past few months we have seen humble men and women denied the freedom to think their own thoughts and to worship God according to their own conscience. German Jewish refugees in Manila called themselves Manilaners. And in March 1939, Frank Ephraim became one of them. It had been a long journey. Via train, they went from Berlin to Munich to the Brenner border crossing that separates Germany from Italy. From there, Pisano, then Genoa, and there on the Genovese port, the Ephraims boarded a steamship filled with Austrian and German Jews, all headed for a strange new life as refugees in Asia. The sun rose on the world's great ports that passed by like clouds on their month-long journey to the east. Naples, Port Said, Aden, Colombo, Bombay, Singapore, and then finally, Manila, past the island fortress of Corregidor and into the long Pier 7 of the harbor, big enough to accommodate two passenger ships. Here's Frank Ephraim, a new lander talking about life in the city that became his home.
1: Well, it was generally relatively routine. Um, much of it had to do with getting acclimated in the Philippines. Uh, the food, what you were able to obtain. Uh, uh, as youth, we also, in this part of the group, we, we took tours out of town. Uh, we went down over 20, 30 miles away to a place called Tai uh, for the day for a picnic. We did all these things. Uh, we did fairly normal things for a change. As I say, we went to school, we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and uh, uh, we socialized, we had people to the house. And one of the things you see when you sit uh, in, a philo- in a in a room is you see little tiny lizards crawling around the ceiling. And that's sort of part of the scene. I mean, And when people see them the first time, they get very upset. And they say, oh, no, 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 no. You have to, the natives or the locals who've been there a while will tell you, no, you have to buy these uh, because they eat mosquitoes. And that's why, you know, they're very handy.
0: They lived in a small apartment in Ermita within walking distance of the Grand Dewey Boulevard with its palm-lined walkways and benches where you could sit and watch the sunset. He attended the parochial school run by Jesuits, where he sometimes won a Catholic rosary during spelling bees. The family went to Temple Emil, a synagogue along Taft Avenue, with a rabbi who had come into the Philippines during the first wave of immigration to Manila. The number of Jewish refugees grew to around 1,200, brought in by Kezon and McNutt's plan of safe haven and sheltered by Frieder and the rest of the Jewish community. Freed from the Nuremberg laws, the refugees could mingle openly as they couldn't back home in Germany with bar mitzvahs, Hebrew school with a cantor, dances, and picnics, as Frank said, in Tagaytay. As a kid, Frank would eat Magnolia-brand popsicles and hang out in the boulevard, or the temple, or at the Houses of Pals. The Ephraims would later move to a house on Taft Avenue, which they rented out to boarders. Curious Filipino friends asked Frank why the Jews in Manila were so poor, at least compared to the other whites living there. Fifty years later, Frank Ephraim would laugh as he remembered that. After Kristalna, The Philippine plans to take in Jewish refugees grew to a massive scale as a new plan was proposed to take in 10,000 refugees and settle them in Mindanao. In a speech he gave on February 15, 1939, just as Frank Ephraim and his family were leaving Germany, Quezon said, The government believed that here was an opportunity to cooperate with an international enterprise inspired by a most laudable purpose and that it could be accomplished in the interest of a national program without in any way depriving filipino citizens of the opportunity of enjoying the benefits of that undertaking the commonwealth government however had severely underestimated the amount of political friction this new expanded project would run into this was more than housing a handful of refugee families. This was large-scale resettlement in a land where proud peoples, many of them Islamic, have lived and worked and died for centuries. It didn't help, too, that McNutt returned to the U.S., leaving Kazan to sell the idea to a now skeptical, and, it must be said, anti-immigration public. McNutt's successor made his position clear the Mindanao plan was an impractical one. Public sentiment soon turned against the project, with newspapers like the Philippine Free Press calling to quote unquote preserve the Philippines for Filipinos. By 1940, Kezun's entire cabinet was opposed to the plan, and Kezun himself began to agree with a new high commissioner. Soon he signed a new immigration law, the first in the Philippines limiting immigration to just 500 people from each nation a year. The Mindanao plan was slowly, silently abandoned. I spoke with Ria Sunga, who spent the last four years working on a PhD dissertation in the University of Manchester about the history of refugees in the Philippines. I asked her Why exactly did the Mindanao plan fail to get off the ground?
1: What I found with at least the Jewish admission is that it was very much linked
0: to the development of Mindanao. And so it was entangled already into these pre-existing policies about moving people to Mindanao to develop
1: it. And the Jews became another um, way of doing that.
0: Nevertheless, the act of saving Jews in World War II had far-reaching effects on Philippine law, which we feel even now. There's also what I think was um, an unintended consequence, was that Philippine immigration policy was shaped. Suddenly, you have now what exists in our immigration law called Section 47B of the Philippine Immigration Act. And this was created in response to the Jewish refugees. Ultimately, the Jewish refugees forced our young country not even independent at the time to consider an important question of nationhood. So the Philippines was sort of creating this identity. What kind of a state are we when we look at people who aren't Filipino? It's a question we're still trying to answer even up to now. But even if the Philippines in the end refused to take in 10,000 Jews, it was able to save more than a thousand of them from the horrors of the concentration camps. In the 1940s, many countries all over the world were already closing their borders to the Jews. Only the Philippines and the Dominican Republic were accepting them and offering them safe harbor. The door was open, if only just a crack, and refugees like Frank Ephraim managed to get in. Frank Ephraim and his family continued to live in the Philippines, even when the Japanese invaded. Since they were deutz Jin, as the Japanese called them, and had German passports, they weren't interned in camps like the one in the University of Santo Tomas. Frank came of age in the occupied country and had his bar mitzvah, in a house where almost everything, even the silverware, had been sold. When the Americans fought a fierce battle to take back the city, the Ephraims loaded all their possessions into a wagon, and for the second time in their lives, fled their home. They took refuge in an empty lot with other Manila residents. Their only shelter, a little lean-to. Their only protection, a little pit covered with palm tree logs. Crouched there in the dark, they watched the city that had become their home burn to the ground. After the war, the Ephraims eventually made it to the United States. But in his interview more than 50 years later, Frank still recalled the Philippines fondly. As a young boy, he had escaped Nazi tyranny, then experienced Japanese terror. But in the end, he had survived World War II. Not many German Jews could say the same. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. References used in this episode are 1. An interview I conducted with Ria Sunga, Ph.D. on June 14, 2021. In addition, her article for Refugee History entitled The Philippines, A Haven for Jewish Refugees, 1937-1941 was also an invaluable resource. Number two, an oral history interview of Frank Ephraim, conducted in 1997 and published in the United States Holocaust Museum's website. It is available to listen for free. Number three, an article called Breaching the Paper Walls, Paul V. McNutt and Jewish Refugees to the Philippines, 1938-1939, written by Dean Kotlowski and published in a 2009 edition of the journal Diplomatic History. The Colonial Department was created and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department.